0: This week's episode is all about home solar and batteries and control over your energy use in your home. And if that is a topic of interest to you, then the company sponsoring our show should be of interest to you as well. It is Fronius, and they've got this new inverter that gives you more control over your solar than ever before. It is called the Primo Gen 24 Plus. Whether you're storing solar power, integrating battery storage, looking for backup power, or all of the above, the Primo Gen 24 Plus has you covered. It comes with AC outlet terminals that provide solar power during outages, even without a battery, ensuring important loads in your house can operate if the grid fails. You want the latest in tech plus peace of mind? Well, you got it with the Primo Gen 24 Plus from Fronius. Visit fronius.us/pv. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey. I'm a contributing editor with GTM. Welcome to the show. This week, predictions for the future of home solar and batteries. Big rooftop solar installers are competing with the biggest utility-scale plants in terms of yearly deployed capacity. Batteries are making their way onto more installations, opening up new advancements in software and power electronics. Tesla says it's finally making progress on the solar roof. Meanwhile, extreme weather, wildfires, and power shutoffs in California are providing a new entry point for consumers. What does all this amount to? In this episode, my co-host Shiel Khan and I sit down with Barry Cinnamon, the CEO of Cinnamon Solar. Barry has been installing solar for nearly 20 years. He is a true veteran, and he knows the minutiae of the business and also where it fits into the broader market and national picture. He writes frequently for green Tech Media, and he often looks out, sometimes way out on the horizon, at the solar, and now the solar and battery business. You know, one of the things that we do on the show is talk about distributed energy from a market perspective. Numbers, trends, news, and Barry is a long time installer, so he can help give us this on the ground perspective on how this fits into consumer decisions, this view from the kitchen table. And that's what he talks about on his show, The Energy Show, which he records at KDOW in San Jose. It is a live weekly program and he also posts it as a podcast. And he talks about clean energy trends and and more importantly, again, the kitchen table issues that people deal with when investing in solar or efficiency. So we dropped in on Barry at KDOW. We had a little technical glitch with the studio at the outset. So we lost just a few minutes of the conversation, but we are going to uh, jump in here at the beginning of the interview when Barry was describing the different sets of decisions that consumers make today versus what they were making nearly 20 years ago when he first got into the solar business.
1: After the environmentally minded people in the early part of uh, the the 2000s, um, the economics started getting good for solar. As soon as we got paybacks down into the five to 10 year range, it really started taking off. And and I'd say... Putting aside the ch- the changes in the cost of the equipment, we're just going through the product life cycle curve. And right now, in 2020, we're into kind of the the early majority. It's a huge market, and these people are putting in solar, not because um, not not just because of the economics, but they're almost feeling guilty. It's like their neighbors have had solar and they've been putting it off, and now they're finally going to do it. So that that's on the solar side. What's fascinating to me is that. Um, When it comes to energy storage and batteries, and that's why I look at this industry as solar and batteries, is that a lot of those earlier solar customers are now upgrading their solar systems and they're adding batteries. And the battery additions are happening um, originally because people thought, well, the economics were going to be there, but but courtesy of PG&E's great marketing efforts from the public safety power shutoffs, People are, are really looking at putting in batteries for the resiliency and the emotional reasons of, hey, I want, I wanna, I want heat, I want lights when the utility just kind of arbitrarily turns off my power. So, but the, the great thing is that you can just see from this life cycle curve that the industry is going to continue to grow pretty robustly, not only because of the batteries, but also because people are putting in bigger systems for electrification.
0: So... Let's, there are a lot of elements there. One is electrification. One is worries about resiliency and power shutoffs. Another is batteries. And we want to try to unpack as many of those as possible because it's obvious that we're entering a new phase where consumers are making a different set of decisions. But the question is, how are they doing that? And um, How does that play out for the broader home solar and home battery market? So, Shale, you're a longtime solar watcher. You have been, similar to Barry, watching this space unfold for many, many years. What are you trying to
2: understand right now at a deeper level? Well, everything Barry said, I think, is true and interesting. Um, I guess some of the questions that I have as we reach this next phase of solar deployment, residential solar deployment. So the first one is, as you mentioned, Barry, we're all of a sudden we're deploying a lot of batteries both on uh, homes that already had solar who are retrofitting to add batteries and then new homes that are adding solar and batteries at once my big question there is is what proportion of the batteries that we're deploying are going to do anything more than just provide backup right because they're obviously big potential in aggregate big assets um, to provide flexibility on the grid uh but actually the the gulf between the potential to provide that flexibility and then actually providing that flexibility monetizing it figuring out the consumer end of it financing it etc that that's a whole other challenge so first question just like what share of those batteries are going to be doing something day to day. That's not just providing backup. Second thing is, uh, how much we're going to start to see overlap between electric vehicles and electric vehicle ownership and solar, you know, they should have relatively similar customer profiles tend to be homeowners tend to be slightly, you know, upper middle class or upper class. Um, and, you know, presents a whole host of additional opportunities if somebody has both electric vehicle and solar, let alone electric vehicle, solar and a battery, um, or electric vehicle, solar, a battery and a smart thermostat or a smart water heater, you know, you can you can layer this stuff on top of each other. And then the third question for me, which is sort of related, is that, you know, independently, we have this total explosion in the smart home, which is driven, I think, primarily by Amazon and Google more than anybody else and voice control of the home. And that's just taking off at rates that are basically unprecedented for consumer technology, especially hardware-based technology. Um, But as it stands right now, you know, the the really the only strong link between this burgeoning smart home world and energy is at the thermostat where there is a a pretty strong link. I would say, you know, that's um, as it stands today, one of the main use cases for, the smart home stuff for voice control is to control the thermostat. And some thermostats actually come with it baked in. But outside of that, once you get into anything else energy related in the home, it's a bit of a more tenuous link right now. So my question in the long term is will um, energy be able to ride the coattails of the smart home revolution? And how will that affect deployment of things like solar and storage?
0: Okay, some biggies right there. So let's take the first one. Uh, What are batteries doing now? Obviously, mostly backup. And When are they going to do something more interesting and more grid interactive?
1: That's, it's, that's a great question. And uh, it's a surprise to almost everybody that they're doing backup right now. The original intent for the battery systems based on California's efforts on the self-generation incentive program, based on a lot of the early systems, at least going into suburban homes, was that we would be arbitraging rates. And the electric rates in California and other areas are changing so that the lowest cost electricity is in the middle of the day. It's 16 cents a kilowatt hour in PG&E territory at noon. And it's 47 cents a kilowatt hour at 4 p.m. So there's a good economic incentive to to have a battery that's going to charge during the day, discharge it, it, um, at night when, when electricity is expensive, and you can get the SGIP rebate. That didn't work. Um, the SGIP program is too complicated. And uh, people are, are really buying the system for resiliency. So I'd say the majority of the people right now are buying it for backup and resiliency, 80% plus. Um, it's an emotional sale. Sometimes it's a little bit easier. But as the costs come down, and as people start to feel the pain of these uh, these hot, uh, really feel the pain of low electricity during the day, and that's ironic, um, they're gonna start putting them in for the economic reasons. And and the math is getting better. I mean, we're, we're moving from, say, a 10-year payback on a battery, when you take everything to into a camp down to like five years, which is where it's gonna to have to be. And that's just
2: accounting for the time of use arbitrage value, right? Mm-hmm. Cause then there's also, it, it's coming in pockets right now, but you see these pockets of folks like Sunrun who are aggregating up a bunch of residential batteries and bidding into to a, a CCA uh, procurement or to utility procurement or a wholesale market or something like that. How much can that additional revenue stream impact the economics and the payback?
1: I've seen a lot of pilots. Sheil, you probably have more information about how they're working. I'm not sure how how much money there is right now to spread around in terms of the gap between providing the peak capacity from a virtual power plant to you know what does that mean to a homeowner or to Sunrun to actually invest in putting in those systems cheaply with the potential of a future revenue stream down the road. But it's going to get better and better. Uh, but right now, I'd say that's more aspirational than reality. It's also,
2: I think, a question for what is the consumer what's the consumer relationship, right? So when you it's again actually I'll ask you a specific question. So when you're deploying solar plus batteries right now, in the contract that you have with the customer, are you reserving any rights to uh operate the battery on behalf of a grid signal? Are you offering them, you know, at one point Solar City back in the day, I think was in Hawaii was offering customers a 50-50 revenue split on any grid services revenue. Like how do you approach that now knowing that there's a possibility there will be value later on
1: specifically we have a fuzzy term in our contract that allows us to do something like that and when we're figuring out when we can figure out how to actually give the customer a little bit of money we'll tighten it up but we have that provision in our contracts but i don't know how to monetize it yet
2: yeah i think that's actually pretty common this like this murky this is potentially monetizable later on and we will figure it out when we get there sort of a situation
0: and that's a bit of a tease for uh some of the predictions that you've made recently over at Green Tech Media. And I'm gonna ask you about one of them. Uh, one of your predictions was consumers aren't gonna really respond well to some of these assets controlled by the utility. And theoretically, if they've got solar and storage, the utility wants to do something interesting with them. And if they're utility controlled, perhaps consumers uh won't wanna invest in them or or you know won't interact with the utility in the way that they want them to, I'm going to ask you about that prediction a little bit later in the show. Let's turn now to the second one, Shale.
2: Okay. Yeah. So the second one was um, basically how much overlap we're going to see between electric vehicle owners and rooftop solar owners. I mean, worth noting that there are, as it stands today, far more rooftop solar systems in the United States than there are electric vehicle owners. So it's actually a smaller market today. But Barry, I'm curious what you're seeing. I mean, especially in Northern California, which is sort of the hotbed of both, um, how much overlap is there between folks who have EVs and folks who who have solar? And to the extent that there is overlap, do you see any common purchasing timelines? In other words, are people buying them both around the same time? Is it totally independent decisions? Obviously, outside of Tesla, where they're selling you both at once, generally it's a sort of different thing. So, just curious, how much you're seeing any impacts on the market there?
1: You know, there, there's definitely a correlation. We see it anecdotally. I haven't really pulled the data, um, but you know, I'd say it's like fifty to seventy percent. But but people are buying an EV, I believe, on a different timeline that they're buying solar, so it's separate. But we are. Um, fairly often putting in the provisions for an EV charger or an EV charger itself, and I think that's going to become more and more common as you've got inverter companies that are building some of those capabilities in. Um, and and Shale, that that kind of comes to your last question. I don't know if you want me to kind of jump ahead to that about the smart home, um, but but when it comes to the smart home. Um, Obviously, there's been a big market for one or $200 boxes that do voice control or the Nest thermostat. You know, I've got a bunch of those toys around. But when it comes to integrating well with a, an existing or new HVAC system or with a solar system or with the electrical panel, um, I, I think we're still kind of far away from that. We're, we're talking about systems that have very crude on-off control, um, not really integrating into the whole smart home concept. But that's going to change. And, I mean, heck, I think back to, like, 2010 when Enphase started to talk about a thermostat that would connect to their system. They had the right idea. Um, I don't know if they're still doing it, but, but, you know, companies like SolarEdge and Tesla are starting to say that they're going to have the ability to control all these appliances and devices in the house in some way. And where it becomes really important is when there's a power shortage, they can kind of adjust it so that the battery life is, is extended. And they can also control those things in a way that are going to reduce energy costs in the home.
2: I think that gets at what's an interesting strategic question for lots of companies, whether they're in the energy space or the smart home space, which are starting to overlap, which is where is the central hub of control going to be? So if SolarEdge and Tesla are saying, well, we want to extend beyond, in SolarEdge's case, our you know battery or inverter into the home and control devices in the home, or Tesla is saying the same thing, you at the mean, same time, you have... Amazon and Google coming from inside the home, probably saying we want to extend our control outward and we want to be the central hub of control. And I think that'll be an interesting battle as these worlds converge a little bit.
1: Yeah, you no, know, that that's a fascinating one. And, and I mean, I I just you know last year completely electrified my home, and my, my biggest frustration is there's just all these islands. I've got like six different apps to run everything in the house, and I'd love to have one or at least have one. Co- coordinate the advantage of that the inverter companies have is that they're they're in the the purchasing decision of the customer is when they're they're spending a lot of money and it's expensive to integrate these things right now so adding you know a thousand dollars onto a twenty or thirty thousand dollar storage system you know you can it comes down with with financing but that's a lot more manageable than trying to convince somebody that's going to spend one or two hundred dollars with google or amazon and then spend a thousand or two thousand dollars with an hvac guy an electrician and start adding some other components so it'll be fascinating to see how it works out Can I ask you about
2: one other sort of technology development that I think also going to be vying for... The central hub of control around at least energy in the home, which is um, these new kind of like smart circuit breakers, smart panels. So companies like Span and Connector, and there's a few startups that are going after that, which are basically saying like, we want to be, we, we will be the hub of the home energy world. And the more you add more distributed energy devices, be they batteries, solar, electric vehicles, et cetera, you need one, you need to make it uh, easier to integrate all those things into your uh, into your house in the first place, and second, then you can you know do a bunch of controls and IoT based on that.
1: Yeah, I mean that that's that, that's a natural. It makes such intuitive sense, but then you have to kind of overcome the barrier of somebody spending a bunch of money to upgrade their service panel. So you have very low barriers to entry systems that are cheap, like Amazon and and google and then you've got more expensive solutions that can be added onto anything like span and the others and then you've got the inverter companies and you got to remember you so you know Tesla's doing it and remember mercedes had that vision of combining the car with the solar with the battery with the home and that didn't work out too well so um, we're going to see some successes and probably a lot of failures over the next 10 years
0: How often are consumers thinking about these issues in the way that we're describing them? Like, do they care about smart home integration? Are they thinking about EV charging paired with solar in the same way? And if not, then how do you start to integrate these offerings when they become more viable? I'm just really curious about how people are thinking through them when they're actually eyeing solar or a battery system
1: they're not aware of the issue until they implement a system. So the consumers aren't really thinking about it at all. And hats off to all these respective industries of saying, hey, we can save some more money like this. But they're not thinking about it. And that's why kind of having the Trojan horse of a really smart inverter in there that, that Solar Ridge and Tesla and others are doing, gives the, the, the solar-related companies an advantage if they can then integrate into these devices. And uh, you know, there, there are technologies that are available, not here in the U.S., but in Europe, um, that, that are starting to, to more smoothly do that integration. But the surprise is consumers aren't thinking about it at all. So, Barry,
0: Elon Musk took to Twitter recently and said, "Hey, we're co- the solar roof is back. We're deploying installations all over California and throughout the country. There's a long period of silence. So are you giving up conventional PV and just going straight into the solar roof? Um,
1: the problem is i <laughs> I can't walk on a solar roof without sliding off the roof." <laughs> so um I, I think it's terrific that that solar that that Tesla and Elon are are pushing what what is intuitively such an elegant solution." Um, but it's going to boil down to costs for people. And, and from the cost standpoint, it's still going to be two or three times more expensive. So um, it's a niche market. I think it's going to really appeal better for new construction. But as far as retrofits, um, you know, it's a lot easier to sell a $20,000 system than a fifty dollars or $60,000 system.
2: Though it is also true that it is generally easier to sell a $20,000 car than a $60,000 car as well. I mean, don't you think that... Tesla's strategy with the solar roof, assuming they can produce it, let's attach a uh, gigantic asterisk to that, assuming they can produce it at volume, you know, isn't their strategy similar to what it has been with cars, which is start at the high end, get the consumers who want the brand and the sex appeal, et cetera, and then slowly move down market?
1: Uh, It's it's possible, but you got to look at the, the installation of the solar roof has a very different gross margin profile. So there's just a lot of labor involved. So, uh, and and one of the surprises to me over the past year or two is our labor costs have gone up a lot. I mean, they say there's no inflation, but there's certainly wage inflation when it comes to the construction industry. So I don't I don't know if they're going to really see those um, the, those economies of scale when they ramp it up. Certainly on the manufacturing of the components, they will. But as far as doing the installation, that's I think the installation of that solar roof is going to end up being more and more expensive just because it takes three or four days as opposed to one day for a conventional rooftop system of, of comparable size.
0: One of the concerns, maybe it wasn't a concern, but like one of the, the pieces of punditry we saw out of Tesla's release of the solar roof was that uh, it might hurt local installers because it could cause consumers to sign up for a roof and just wait indefinitely for one of these systems that may never come. And it might defer their investment in standard rooftop PV. I wonder if you ever see that happening with customers. Has there been a knock-on effect of Tesla's entrance with this new product that really is still mostly non-existent, but still looms very large over solar?
1: You know, I, I just a couple weeks ago, I saw my first competitive quote from a customer that was comparing an, an ordinary PV system to a solar roof. And um, it, because of the cost differential, there's really not a lot of. Competition yet. If the cost comes down a lot, then there will be. But it's pretty easy to sell against that, you know. And, and heck, you know, Tesla's probably selling a hundred times more of their ordinary their you know, PV rooftop panels than the the solar roof, the solar tiles.
0: We're just going to tap the pause button here for a moment and bring you a message from our sponsor, Fronius. Now, this is relevant to a lot of you who are listening to this conversation and wondering about the market for solar and storage. Maybe you're an installer yourself or maybe you're a homeowner and you're wondering what's out there. Well, Fronius has a brand new inverter. First of all, Fronius has been making inverters and power electronics for a long time. They are truly a stalwart in the industry. And their new inverter, the Primo Gen 24 Plus, can be the backbone of your solar supply. It can transform your home's energy security. It's a versatile hybrid inverter that delivers long-lasting backup power during outages. Thanks to multi-flow technology and integrated backup power, the Primo Gen 24 Plus will keep supplying energy loads and charge a battery at the same time. It's extremely simple to install in your home and you can commission it right on your smartphone and connect it to your smart home. With a variety of integrated features like energy management, data communication and basic grid backup, the Primo Gen 24 Plus from Fronius offers uniquely flexible solutions for your home solar supply. Go to fronius.us/pv that's f r o n i u s.us/pv So, Barry, uh, you mentioned that you went through this electrification process, and I read this interview with you in the San Jose Mercury News, and you mentioned that you had fully electrified your house, and then a PG&E inspector came by your house wondering why you weren't using any natural gas. Uh, How was that process in electrifying your house? Because I've read horror stories about people going through this process in California.
1: The, the process was it, it, very, very smooth, really no no issues at all. Um, even our solar contractor was very responsive, um, including the guy who put it in the back. That's, that was our company. The, the whole process <laughs> was very smooth. The challenge is that we had to engage with five or six different contractors. Um, I had a, an insulation guy re-insulate the roof. I had a pool pump guy put in a new pool pump. I had an electrician come in and upgrade our electric panels. I had a uh, plumber come in and put in the heat pump water heater. I had um, an HVAC guy come in and put in the the. Air to air heat pump that that does the air conditioning also, and then I had the solar guy, my company, put in the panels and the batteries. So, I mean, that's like six different contractors to do this. Um, that that was just a little bit complicated. Um, but other than that, every contractor worked out very smoothly. I you know got a couple of bids, except for the solar guy, it was a single source. Um, the, um, the, the and everything went pretty smoothly. Got build building permits for everything we needed, and it's all working. But coming back to one of the earlier uh, points that the questions that Jill had the one thing that's not working are all the controls all these systems are islands and so i have to manage them all independently in order to maximize my savings the good news is the the generation of the solar system exceeds what the house is using including my car so we're, we're, we're doing quite well in that res- in that respect and we have backup power for so when uh, pg&e turns off the power i've got my critical loads running but the whole system went smoothly
2: Can you dig in a little more on what it actually means that you have to operate all these systems independently? Like what are the six apps that you're using and what do you, what do you have to do with them individually?
1: <laughs> Great question. The the uh, the attic insulation doesn't have an app. That just you know keeps the the roof cool. The pool pumps I've got an old <laughs> I've got an old pool uh, system pool control. So there's a there's two clocks outside. So when the power goes out, I got to go readjust those. And I changed to operate the pool pumps at night when the pool guy was a re- the previous owner ran them during the day. So that that's manual controls there. Um, HVAC system is the biggest energy user. I've got two nest thermostats. So I, you know, adjust those as needed to minimize the heating and cooling costs. The, um, the heat pump water heater is a great heat pump water heater. I, I tried for, for months to get the, uh, internet control on that working and I still didn't, but it's, it's okay. So I just have it set and it the heat pump water heater is great. There's an app. I can't get that to work. The EV charger is integrated with my inverter, and I just have that to charge the car after midnight every night, um, and so I, I don't worry about that. And uh, the solar's, you know, I've got an app for that, and I can see how the solar and the battery storage are working, and that's that's pretty much just all automatic.
2: And so in your ideal version of events, this would all exist in one app or one platform. And it sounds like you don't actually need to do a whole lot, right? You've got, you set it all once and you sort of set it and forget it. So even if you had the single app, like that would save you a little bit of effort, but it kind of seems like it would be, it might be a little superfluous if you're not, if you wouldn't even need to log into that app anyway.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I don't mind dealing with the different apps. I'd like the apps to talk to each other. So I I would like, I, I would like to be able to say to my home, I'm going on vacation. Um, so turn the water temperature down to 100 degrees. You know, keep the house uh, no no higher than 55 degrees in the winter. Or, you know, don't turn the air conditioning on in the summer. Um, th- th- those are the things that I would like to do, and I can't yet because they're all separate.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. That was sort of the original vision of the smart home, right? There was this like smart home wave a decade ago that didn't didn't really take off, but you know, it was all about whole home automation. Like that was the idea at the time. And you know, some early adopters really like techie people kind of set that up and then, but it never really reached mainstream status. And then now we have this new like roaring back of the smart home that's driven by voice control. Um, but you know, it, I think it's a, it's a long road to that whole home automation world but i find it really interesting because i do think if we're going to see increasing proliferation of these various smart home devices be they energy tied or not energy tied then simple stuff like what you're describing i'm on vacation set me set my whole house in vacation mode seems like it is the obvious end game but what's hard to figure out is where who who you're going to say that to and what they have to integrate with
1: the The other thing that I find that that was surprisingly extremely useful and probably the most useful feature of of managing and controlling my home, is my ability within the the solar edge app and Tesla has the same thing to monitor the home's energy uh, electricity consumption. So there's CTS on the the PG&E line. We know how much is being generated. We know what's going on in the battery, and and that's been really useful for me to look at those curves every once in a while and say, "Gee, why did I use so much energy at you know four o'clock in the afternoon when it's forty-seven cents a kilowatt hour?" And then make changes. Um, the the and and there's been a lot of companies, as you said, shell of of offering that kind of home automation monitoring. But it's expensive to put in professionally. I mean, you're looking at $500 to $1,000 by the time you have an electrician roll a truck and put this control in. But when it's built into the inverter, that hub of the home, then th- that cost is avoided. It's kind of automatic, and you're also getting the benefit of the solar and the storage. So, so companies that have that built into their um, inverter offering have a, have a big advantage. And that's useful because that's going to save customers money.
0: Well, Shale has to leave us now. Shale, uh, thanks very much. And we will catch up with you next week.
1: Thank you.
2: Take care, guys.
0: Okay. Lots more to talk about. Um, I want to continue to talk about this electrification project because the integration stuff is a pain in the neck for a lot of homeowners, but also just the Contracting process. I mean, you're you you've been in this business for so long. I, I'm sure it's a lot easier for you to find the right people, and you know what you want. But if I'm a homeowner who doesn't really under this space, understand this space, and I'm googling around and I'm just trying to find the right person to do the right job, and you know, get me a heat pump, get me a solar system, um, insulate my house. I'm talking to contractors who are not necessarily talking to each other, and I have heard a couple of people who have tried to electrify their homes that have faced this process where you just have a bunch of folks who are doing individual jobs who kind of don't understand the whole home system. And uh, there's also this other element of interacting with the utility as well and understanding sort of the rebates and incentives. So that to me feels like a really tough sell for a lot of homeowners.
1: It, it's complicated. The, 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 um, The good news is that anybody that has hired a contractor, um, kind of knows the process, but, but, um, Stephen, it was a challenge for me too, besides the solar side. I mean, I had to really interview plumbers to find the heat pump water heater. That was hard to do. And insulation contractors, HVAC companies, I had a pool guy, um, and, you know, I knew some electricians, which was pretty easy, but you have to do it all separately, um, I think it's going to be unusual and it's going to be an outlying case for a homeowner to say, I want to do all this at once. So you're generally going to go through this process somewhat gradually because the most cost effective way to do it is except for the solar and the storage, it's you replace equipment when it dies. And, and so that's, that's the point at which you have to make the decision what to get the, the biggest challenge. And and this is something that, that is, is subtle, but it hits people here in California. It's going to hit, hit a, hit people also throughout the country. Um, the limitation to electrification is this: basically the size of the wire going to the house and the size of the electric panel in the house. So w- when the houses were built 20 years ago or 75 years ago or whatever, there was no EV charger, there was no heat pump heating system, there was no heat pump water heater, um, th- there was no induction cooktop, people were using gas. And as you add all those electric appliances, you've gotta upgrade the electric service. And that's the, that's the biggest barrier to widespread electrification because it's time-consuming and expensive. Not that big a deal if you plan ahead, but when your, your gas hot water heater dies and there's a puddle on your basement or garage floor, that's not the time to start finding out how long it's going to take and how much money it's going to take to upgrade your electric service so you can put in a heat pump water heater. You're going to just call up a plumber and he's going to say, yeah, I'll put a new gas heater in, in, two, in two days. But it it could be months before they're able to, um, before you can find an electrician that's going to upgrade that service. So you can put in that heat pump water heater, or you can put in that air-to-air heat pump instead of your gas furnace. Having gone through this, how are you feeling about the
0: emerging Electrify Everything movement?
1: I'm I'm incredibly excited because it's going to do, it's the best thing we can do as far as reducing the carbon footprint of existing buildings. Um, And- You know, states and and cities are are mandating a lot of these electrification things. There's incentives out there. But we're now starting to hit the the reality of how do we get all these contractors on board to do this promptly. And these are the kind of real world barriers that are coming up. Um, It's. One would think that the utilities would sell more electricity, but when you have a utility like PG&E that also sells gas, they don't have an incredible incentive to make this easier. They want the EV chargers because that's replacing gasoline, but you know, it hits their bottom line when you're taking out the furnace and the, the hot water heater that are powered by gas and, they're, and, and it's electric. And they have a CCA, so they're not even getting as so much revenue.
0: So Barry, are you ready to revisit some of your predictions from the last couple of years?
1: Uh, every every I, I've been doing these predictions for the past five or six years, so every year I revisit them um, and see how I did. Um, but I don't recall what I predicted a few years ago. I just kind of I got some notes here for kind of the next 10 years. So, I don't know, Stephen, if, you, if you've if you got some of those old notes, I'd be happy to, to comment on how, how dumb I was.
0: Uh, well, I, I went through some of the predictions, and some of them are really prescient, and some of them uh, I want to ask you about. So let's go to... The nature of the solar business. There was this big debate. There's this a perennial debate in the solar industry about whether it's going to be local contractors who dominate or whether this national model will dominate. And we saw the national installers thin out recently, but the ones that have risen to the top are doing quite well. So in 2017, you wrote at Green Tech Media uh, small, local, and medium sized regional rooftop solar companies will thrive, and bigger is badder in the solar business. Um, so, uh, you know, Tesla has obviously had its struggles. Um, we saw, you know, Vivint have its struggles, but Vivint is, is, seems to be surging again. But Sunrun is, of course, doing really well. And I just wonder, how do you feel about this debate about, you know, local and regional companies dominating versus the, the big national folks?
1: So, I'm going to stick with that prediction um, and really hats off to Sunrun for figuring out how to do it very, very effectively. the 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 thing that we have to separate is the the business model of a, of a standard contractor versus the business model of a contractor that also provides financing. So there's a good revenue stream and and public publicly available financing. Uh, for companies like Sunrun and Vivint and, and and possibly Tesla to to roll out this national model because they're going to get profits, they're going to get revenues from the financing side of it. But I still haven't seen a single solar company that has really been able to profitably expand um, without having that uh, financing juice on the, the back end of their uh, financial statements. Can you just remind us why that is? The, you know, two thousand and one, when I started up Aquina Solar, a, a, a good friend said, "Hey, you know there's there are no national HVAC residential contractors. There are no national electricians. There are no national plumbers um, you know, putting rotor rooter aside, which is a franchise business. And I thought that with uh, efficiency, Technology, proprietary products—I would be able to do that. Um, but what happened with me is I expanded throughout the country at offices in six or seven different states. And um, th- the solar industry is not really stable in those states. So I was opening offices twice in New York, twice in New Jersey, twice in Colorado, twice in Connecticut. S- California was really the only really stable market. So w- when you're expanding, y- you make an investment and you get some return if that investment continues. But uh, when you have to shut that office down, it's painful. So it would kind of come and go. So that was one, and it's just kind of inherent with the solar industry. I think the bigger reason is that the, the local company has the ability to just operate more efficiently. Even though the local company might pay more for equipment, they buy through distribution, they don't get great prices directly from the manufacturers, um, they may not have as elegant systems, they can deliver the solar and the solar and storage solution more for less money fundamentally than a bigger national company. And you kind of look at the customer, then what's the biggest cost customer acquisition, customer acquisition through referrals is very, very efficient. That's the lowest cost way of doing it. And the local guys also have an, an, an advantage with that on the, on the fact of they've got a, a book of existing customers, and they can continue to market them. And as long as they have a good reputation, they'll get more customers in that neighborhood. From a service and service and maintenance standpoint, it's also much easier for the local guy because they they have local trucks doing installations, and those local trucks can you know stop by if somebody needs a, a checkup on their system or re- replace an inverter or something. It just operates more efficiently.
0: Here's one that. I honestly th- agreed with in 2017, but is sadly not come true. Uh, and that is President Trump will embrace solar because it's cheaper and continues to be a jobs engine. Um, I, I really did think that his administration, because of the polling, because of how much Republicans on a local level love renewable energy, that they they wouldn't attack solar and, and renewables. And, um, you know, this prediction didn't come true. Uh, so any response to that, and then I'd love to know what the customer makeup is. I mean, I'm sure you don't really talk politics that much, but uh, there are a lot of conservatives and people who identify as Republican who absolutely love solar, and they make up a pretty significant share
1: of, of solar owners. Yes. Yeah, so, so as far as that prediction, candidly, I, I, I was there was wishful thinking, and uh, the I just wanted to be nice to hope that, that there would be some support there. Um, but I, I, you know, the the the. The writing was on the wall that the Trump administration wouldn't necessarily be that supportive of solar, certainly not as much as the the Clinton administration, Hillary Clinton was talking about, you know, whatever, uh, uh, 500 million solar panels. Um, So unfortunately, I was wrong on that. And, uh, but I'm not going to make the same mistake this year. (laughs) It's very, very clear that that, um, a a trillion trees isn't going to be good as a, um, you know, 500 million solar panels. Um, And so hopefully... From a political standpoint, the degree to which people care about energy, climate change, and the environment, um, we'll, we'll find somebody that's going to be better. Um, about re- Regarding the, the political leanings of customers, um, early on, and this just goes back to when I thought about what color should I paint my trucks? Um, green was kind of the natural way to do it but then i did a little bit of research and i found that yeah there are a lot of customers who don't really buy into that plan and and we had offices in Fresno and and i, I checked into that i said don't then I was told don't paint your trucks green, um, because that's going to turn some people off. So our trucks are kind of this, the color of a yellow jacket. They're yellow and black. Um, and, and, uh, we do avoid that political conversation at the kitchen table because, um, some, you know, most of the times it works out okay. And, and sometimes it's a disaster. So, um, but that's not to say that, um, that, that situation I hope will change as far as, uh, just everybody getting on board of doing the right thing for the environment.
0: So let's look at your most recent piece, which was uh, a series of predictions for the next decade. We don't have to go through all of them, but there are a couple here I want to unpack. Uh, number one was storage will be standard with solar. How is that standardization coming into place? And, you know, you, uh, in a previous year, you said that batteries will continue their slow march toward 50% penetration. So where are we on that? And, um, and, and how soon will storage become standard with solar?
1: Well, some uh, some companies are are already seeing battery attachment rates that are forty percent or more. We're not quite there yet because we're on a cash basis and there's a, a still a pretty good incremental cost there. But it's it's definitely going to happen. I mean, when when you know we're looking at standard, maybe it's eighty or ninety percent. I would clearly think that in two or three years we'll be looking at eighty or ninety percent of all new systems that go in will have storage, and that's that's just going to accelerate because of the way the electric rates have changed, because of the need for resiliency, um, and because of uh, the lowering equipment costs, all added by hopefully what would be a a good incentive program for uh, adding battery storage to solar systems. There's
0: a technical question about battery performance that you think will be an ongoing issue over the next decade, And, and just understanding how to predict uh, how these batteries will operate over time will will be a challenge. So uh, how much of an issue is that for an installer like yourself?
1: Yeah, it, this, is a, this is a little bit of a minefield because solar contractors, the solar industry is very confident with the performance of a, a PV panel and a, a PV panel with an inverter. I mean, we know they work. They're guaranteed for 25 years. The, the maintenance costs are, are they're there, they're, they're predictable, they're relatively min- minimal. We're all walking around with three or four batteries in our in our pockets, in our bags, in our purses, and we know that they don't last that long. Um, the batteries that are that are being incorporated with solar systems typically have a 10-year life. The batteries in our cars, you know, 100,000 miles, 10 years. We know there's going to be issues with those. And the tricky thing about the batteries is that um, it's it's still relatively new technology. I mean, it hasn't been out there for for much more than 10 years, and we don't really have a good window into the performance of those batteries. In my—I had, had a Highlander, um, a, a hybrid Highlander, and I really— I saw that the battery kept kind of degrading over the years, but my dealer said it's it's working just fine. Um, so there there will be issues, and the battery systems will require more attention. And it's not just replacing the battery after ten years. The electric rates change, people's use of those systems are going to change. We're talking about a smart home. When that comes in, there's going to have to be some changes in the way that those batteries are going to be managed. So contractors have to pay more attention to customers with batteries because there's more things that you can change as opposed to a PV system that, you know, you put it in and it's just going to work for 25 years.
0: So of your predictions for the next decade, which one are you most confident in? Which one do you stand
1: by? Um, well, there, there's a few of them that are going to stand by, but but one of them, which is really important, is, is the software is the price of admission. You're going to have to have good, comprehensive apps, administration software, commissioning software, fleet-level software um, to really make the thing work. So it's not just a hardware business. It's it's hardware and software. So I'm really confident with that. Um, commercial industrial storage is going to take off, but it's just not quite there yet because we don't have really, uh, uh, we, we don't have mass market equipment as we do with inverters and PV systems that go on, you know, your 50, 100, 500 kilowatt, uh, uh flat roof system. So that that's going to take some time. Um, you know, the, the last one's kind of subtle and, and I don't have it as a specific prediction, but, um, it, it, it keeps coming up. You're, uh, Mark Andreessen did an article, I don't know, 10 10 years ago, 15 years ago, and and it was entitled Software is Going to Eat Hardware. Um, And I'm seeing the same thing happen in the energy industry. And I'm going to recharacterize it a little bit. And the way I'm recharacterizing it is um, electrons are going to eat atoms. Um, uh, It's kind of subtle, but the, the ability to generate electricity from photovoltaic, which is basically just electrons moving around, um, the ability to store the energy in the battery, just as, which is once again just through, through uh, the chemical enger- energy in the battery, that concept is a lot more cost effective than building equipment, than mining and burning fossil fuels, than adding more hydroelectric dams, then putting in more geothermal power systems, then making some big device that's going to store mechanical energy and turn it into electrical energy. So I I can see that there's a trend towards more electronic, elegant, electron-based energy systems as opposed to systems that are based on building equipment and mining and drilling and refining and moving big things around.
0: Well, that feels like a good place to wrap it up. You know, I can remember this other presentation that uh, Benedict Evans, also from Andreessen Horowitz, made called Software Will Eat the World. And I think there are a lot of parallels to the rise of solar as well. So if you think electrons are going to eat atoms, will
1: solar electrons eat the world? Right now, I see nothing on the horizon that this is going to compete with the current and future trends of less and less expensive electricity from solar. Yeah. There'll be new solar technologies, new types of solar cells, but uh, it's it, it's pretty clear to me that that's the most efficient way to do it. I mean, maybe we'll come out with some kind of fusion system, but that's going to take us back to a centralized power generation model and um, what... what uh, what what Doc had in Back to the Future, the mini home fusion thing in his car, that's that's going to be 100 years away. So PV is definitely the way to go for the foreseeable future.
0: Barry Cinnamon, the CEO of Cinnamon Solar. Thank you
1: so much. All right. Terrific, Stephen. And uh, thanks, thanks, Shale. Uh, love, I love these uh, interchange podcasts. And again, you can hear
0: uh, Barry's energy show. You can subscribe to that wherever you get podcasts. And he's also doing the show at KDOW in San Jose. So if you're out there, make sure to tune in. And we'll also link to some of the pieces that he's written at Green Tech Media. With Shale Khan, I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Interchange. If you want to react to some of these trends, hit us up on Twitter. We are all there. If you want to send us some ideas, we are at postscriptaudio at gmail.com. Our senior editor is Ingrid Lobet. And you can catch us next week. We'll be talking about artificial intelligence and climate solutions. So we'll geek out on that. Thanks for joining us. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Greentech Media.